Welcome to episode 137. Today, Dr. Victoria Murphy will share her report on early childhood education for speakers of other languages. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. We all know that early education sets up children for success for the rest of their academic and personal lives. When we talk about raising young children to be adults who are multilingual, it's even more important. That's why I've invited Dr. Victoria Murphy to share her extensive report commissioned by the British Council to learn how to design early childhood education programs specifically for speakers of other languages. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so honored and humbled to have Dr. Victoria Murphy on the podcast, who co-authored Early Childhood Education in English for Speakers of Other Languages. This was a commissioned uh, report by the British Council, and of course, that got my attention right away. So, Dr. Murphy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Tan. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start off with uh, talking about a story of working with teachers or educators that has really shaped your practice. Mm. Well, I actually, this is a difficult question to answer in the sense that I, I've been really lucky to have worked with many great teachers and um, I had many great teachers as a student myself. Um, so that was very lucky because we know how powerful teachers are in the lives of young children. Um, I've also worked with many really great teachers in the course of my, um, my position as an academic and in doing research. I do a lot of collaboration with schools and teachers to do my research. Um, and I've also had lots of fantastic students. So just sort of identifying one uh, teacher or student or experience that um, has really shaped the way I think about language and language education and so on, I think is probably impossible. But what I think is perhaps the, the story about why or how, why I value bilingual education so much and how I ended up learning and studying it, I think comes from my own personal experience of participating in French immersion programs as a child in Ottawa. So I'm originally from Ottawa in Canada. And as, as you know, Ottawa is the uh, capital city of Canada and Canada is an officially bilingual country. And so Ottawa has a lot of French in, in it because there's lots, you know, it's the houses of parliament, the civil servants, and you have to be able to speak both languages to be able to work in, um, in, in government services. I lived in a predominantly English speaking suburb and my parents were uh, from England and of a generation when, you know, if you spoke English, that's all you needed. So I didn't have, I didn't live in a multilingual community, but 
but by being in Ottawa and by being in Canada, actually, there's so much French in the ambient environment. So on the TV, on the radio, and even on the breakfast table in the sense that, you know, all the products that you buy in shops have like half written in English and the other half written in French. And so I was sort of used to growing up with two languages sort of around me. And I remember as a young child thinking that this was really cool that you could communicate the same thing, but using a completely different language. And um, I started school, my own personal school, I think was, I was probably at around three years old and I, I went into Montessori school as a kind of preschool, early childhood education setting. And we started French at that time. And we did all sorts of nursery rhymes and things in French. And I remember vividly, even though it was 150 years ago, that uh, a teacher coming into my class at primary school uh, uh, with a sort of form in her hand and said to us kids in the class that if we wanted to spend the day within French uh, next year and beyond to take this form home and get our parents to sign it. And I, I just thought that was the coolest thing. So I ran home with, you know, clutching my little form and I begged my parents to let me uh, sign up to this thing. Uh, and I couldn't really have known what it was, <laughs> but I just thought it sounded great. And for some reason, my parents um, agreed. And so after that point, I was in French immersion for a number of years. And obviously, in hindsight, I realized I must have been a, a student in one of the early cohorts of the French immersion programs as they were being implemented. But I really enjoyed it. I, I remember just loving it and thinking, how lucky I was to be able to be in this environment, even though I was in a really English speaking environment. When I walked into that classroom, it was French and you spoke French to everybody and your teacher spoke French and we learned all the curricular subjects in French and all of that. So I think that experience as a student um, and having had those opportunities, um, really sort of reinforced my interest in language and how people learn languages, which is why then I went to study linguistics and psychology at university. And now here I am ending up, this is what I do for a living, is sort of re researching how young people learn languages in uh, educational contexts. So um, I'm not sure if that's the kind of story you were thinking of, <laughs> but I think that is probably the kind of, the, the most profound, sort of beginning to, to how I was interested in, in all of this, this whole field. I, I so want to ask your parents if they were here, like, so your daughter brought this form home and you and your parents are from England. So how did they, are they monolingual? Like how, what was the conversation of like, oh no, our daughter's going to lose her English because she's going to learn French. Like what was that conversation like? You know what? I can't remember that conversation. Uh, I and I actually have to say, knowing my parents who were monolingual and, like I said, they were of a generation from England, where my mother would say that when she was growing up, she felt sorry for people who were not English. I mean, that that kind of attitude because they didn't have English as a native language, um, and. So I'm, I'm very grateful that my parents saw the merit in letting me participate in French immersion. I do remember there was one 
time while I was in it, where they started expressing some concern that some of my English spelling was going out the window. And I was, there were sort of cross-linguistic influence errors um, that were directly attributable to my learning French. But even then they allowed me to stick with it, which was the right thing to do, of course, because we now know from research that, you know, yes, there may be, there may be influence or uh, interference across linguistic systems, but um, you know, over time, the, the advantages of, of having those sorts of experiences are just legion in, in comparison to any disadvantages. So um, yeah, I, I think my parents, that was one of the best things that they ever did for me was to give me that permission to do it and to allow me to stick with it. I think that says, that speaks volumes about their open-mindedness and that they're, they're willing to uh, see this as a gift and not as a hindrance. And I think the French one-way immersion program, the bilingual one-way bilingualism that started in France, so I started in Canada, has really informed the two-way bilingualism that mm-hmm. occurs in America. And that's what Dr. Collier and yeah. Thomas shared about. Oh, we took it from Canada. And the research yeah. shows that um, you are clearly, your English isn't held back just because you went to French. How many years did you study in, in all in French? Uh, well, it must have been about uh, four or five. And then when I was, because um, I was relatively young when I started. And then uh, when I went to secondary school, sort of middle to upper secondary school, the one that was right close to my house didn't have French immersion. So I, I then had to make a choice. If I stayed in French immersion, I'd have to go to some other school far farther away. And it wasn't as good a school as my local one. But my local one, knowing that there were many students like me, they put together a separate French course, which was, was like more advanced than the advanced version of French because they knew that there were going to be people like me who had been in French immersion for a number of years now taking French. Their normal advanced was still not advanced enough. So, and I had a phenomenal teacher named Mr. White. (laughs) He wasn't French, but his French was impeccable. His, His proficiency was superb and he was a superb teacher. He was very firm, very but very fair. Everybody knew where they stood with Mr. White. He was a fantastic teacher. But yes, my, my French was significantly advanced relative to, for example, my siblings who um, went to exactly the same schools, lived in the same house in the same neighborhood as me, um, but didn't have French immersion. And I remember helping my older sisters. My eldest is five years older than me. And I remember helping her with her French homework because my French was so much better than hers. And I'm sure that's because of French immersion. I mean, that was the only, the only explanation for that. So it really, it really is a superb model of bilingual education. Now, as you are um, a product of uh, French uh, immersion, what do you notice about it now that you are fluent in both languages? Well, for starters, I feel grateful because I know a lot of people who sort of like me, English kids growing up in English environments uh, in Canada, and they have a level of French that is okay uh, because, you know, 
French is taught as a, as a second language. Um, and again, because there's French all around the ambient environment, it's reinforced in many respects. But clearly my French is uh, better, well, not clearly, but not clearly to you, but clearly to me, my French is a lot better than, um, than uh, my husband's who actually grew up in Montreal. He grew up in Montreal, but he didn't go to French immersion and he was in an English suburb of Montreal. So um, again, just being in Montreal didn't mean that he was gonna end up bilingual. Um, and it just, I just think it, it opens up so many opportunities for someone if they can speak another language to a reasonably high standard. Um, there's the obvious things like when we went to the south of France in September for our holiday, I was able to talk to people all around us, which was really, really nice. Um, but, but just having access to things like culture and movies and books and being able to speak to people who you might otherwise not be able to speak to because you can share their language. So um, I think that's really just incredibly powerful. I, I like people and I like learning about different people and cultures and societies. And so, you know, if I could, I'd speak every language in the world. And so, so that I, that would be possible, but of course um, it's probably too late for that now. But the other thing I've noticed in terms of studying bilingual education and immersion in particular, when I was in it as a student, uh, we were still in the, the time of separate you know, the two solitudes kind of notion that I had everything in French except for English and PE, physical education. Jim was in English and English was in English, but everything else is in French. Uh, and when we were doing maths in French, there was no English whatsoever, none. And when we were doing English, literature or language analysis or PE or anything else, there was obviously no French. So they were completely separated out. And I know that there's been a lot more research much more recently about the value of drawing on the different languages that are available to the child so that there might very well be times when you're in the, you know, you're learning maths through the medium of French, but the teacher making a connection to something that using English or something like that can be extremely effective pedagogically. So I'm pleased to see that uh, even within this sort of standard French immersion type model, that there's a healthy interest, both from a research perspective, but also from a pedagogical perspective for people to, to, to bring more languages into the classroom and not try and separate them out because I think that's really important. Yeah, no more language hierarchies. Uh, I still remember when I, a few years ago, about 10 years ago, when I first started teaching, I would say, uh, this is an English only school. And they were all Chinese students. And I was like, I wish I could go back and say, oh no, I'm so sorry that I made you do that. And now we understand you were referring to translanguaging, like teachers yeah. teaching using a translanguaging stance where they say, or they're having students tap into students entire linguistic repertoire, all tools that they have available to them to make meaning, yeah. to communicate. Yeah. Right. yeah, that's exactly it. I think, I think that we've, we, we have learned a lot, which is a really positive thing.
and we still have so much more to learn. And which brings us to your 319-page report by British Council. Would you tell us about the seed of that that report? It's almost like a book because it's 319 pages, and it's free for everyone to read. What was the intention for British Council to co-partner with you on this research? Yeah, well, I certainly call it a book because uh, it looks like a book and smells like a book. And in fact, I have a physical copy of it. So this is a book. However, as you quite rightly said, it is um, freely available to anybody, a free download. So anyone who's interested, I think, should, should check out the British Council's website. But as you said, Tan, it was originally, the whole idea of it came from the British Council they were looking to find an editor for this volume, um, which was, and they had already set the topic, which was going to be about early childhood education that was in English for children who spoke another language, i.e. not English. And um, I had just finished writing a book for the OUP, the Oxford University Press, on a very similar topic. And um, my co-editor colleague, uh, Maria Evangelou, is... Um, recognized expert on early childhood education, but not necessarily the language part, but I knew a lot about the language part. So Maria and I working together with the British Council was a really good sort of collaboration because I think the general motivation for the volume was, was based on a twofold observation. And the first one being that increasingly around the world, children are experiencing early childhood education because that was not always the case for children uh, internationally. Um, and that increasing numbers of children when they're in that early childhood education and care settings are being exposed to English, either through English being the medium of instruction or through English being the subject of instruction. So um, the British Council wanted a wide ranging book on English language learning in these early years educational settings and um, in, the, in this particular volume, early years is defined as zero to seven. So it covers quite a range of ages. And they, they were hoping their that, that this volume would outline key issues that related to research and importantly, research informed practice um, that would be discussed and well, presented and discussed. And they wanted a volume that would provide that kind of an overview and that had global reach. Um, and particularly they wanted it to be a volume that um, was valuable to practitioners, hopefully policymakers and teacher educators. And I think even researchers as well, it can be, it, it can be useful because it provides sort of snapshots. It's a little old now because I think it was published in 2015, but it provides a snapshot of um, different issues relevant to um, early years, uh, education through English or on English around the world and raises a number of different issues. So I think, I think it does what it set out to do. Even though it was uh, published in 2015, the, the research findings and the theories are still relevant to today. Uh, we'll actually go into those parts. There are three parts of the book. And the first part is all about perspectives of English instruction during early childhood. You have scholars from every continent and region share their findings. What were the patterns uh, that, and the running themes through these diverse perspectives? 
Yeah, um, I think one of my concerns when I took on the job of being the editor for this volume was given that it was meant to have this global reach, that it would be very difficult to find a kind of a, a theme or patterns that spoke across the different educational contexts. And of course, we know how dangerous it can be to generalize from one context to the other um, because of all the different sort of pressures and geopolitical characteristics of different contexts that we can't always do that. But actually, it, it was very obvious what the patterns were uh, once we had these um, excellent contributions in from the individual contributors. So we have, for example, in that first section that you're talking about, we had um, a chapter written by Fred Genesee, who's of course very well known in, in the field for his work on um, bilingual education and bilingualism. And he talked about the North American context, which of course is vast. Um, but he talked about how there are certain beliefs that people hold that actually inform policy um, uh, in relation to how young learners will learn languages through educational systems. And he spends his chapter talking about those beliefs and then talking about the evidence that does or importantly actually does not support those beliefs. Like there are folk beliefs and then there's research and what we know from research and those things, sometimes it's the folk beliefs that are motivating particular policy decisions uh, and that we need to have a better understanding of the research. And in South America, uh, the context there was written, uh, we had our chapter written by Anne-Maria de Mejia and she discusses different programs, bilingual programs that have been implemented in the South American context. And one of the big things that she raises, which is also raised in Fred Genesee's chapter, is teacher education and how uh, we need really good initial teacher training programs for teachers of the early childhood education settings, but also to be effective teachers in bilingual contexts, we need um, good in-service support and we need teachers with good proficiency in the language in which they are trying to be, um, trying to promote. And uh, I wrote the chapter on Europe. Um, we had an excellent chapter about India written by Padmini Shankar and Paul Gunashekar. We have one on Africa and I say Africa, it's actually the, um, the authors here, Nipayel Marutu talk, and colleagues talked about Tanzania. So obviously that's just one country in all of Africa. And again, we need to be careful about not overgeneralizing. Um, one of the particularly interesting things that emerged from there, I think was this notion that uh, the research that such as it is used to inform practice in a country like Tanzania tends to be research from the global north and Tanzania could be considered the global south and that we again need to be careful, even if we're using research to inform our policy and practice, is it the right, you know, it, can it speak to this particular context? In, um, we had a chapter about Australia that was written by Lauren Guan and colleagues, and that's a really interesting chapter because it's all about Indigenous um, children's language development, because of course Australia is an incredibly multilingual rich society in terms of all of the languages that there, but there are some really specific challenges and issues 
in relation to the education of Indigenous children in Australia. Um, and so they talk about that and they talk about assessment, but again, teacher training uh, and the importance of inclusive policies and framing language and languages and curricula to um, sort of grasp and support the language development. And then the final chapter in this section was about Eastern Asia, which again is a massive part of the world. Um, but this was written by Yanling Zhu and colleagues, and they talk about the importance again of teacher training, teacher education, and proficiency in English. They also uh, talk about the lack of research that underpins. So it, again, picks up on some of the things that Fred Genesee talked about in his about North America that. People have beliefs about things, but then there's research evidence and the people who are making decisions are sometimes making those decisions on their beliefs, but not always because they have knowledge of the evidence that underpins that. Um, so I think given all of that work that was discussed across those different um, contexts, the patterns which emerge are the, the sort of obvious that more and more around the world, certainly in 2015, and I'm sure it's even more so now, that young people between zero and seven are being exposed to A, formal educational contexts, and B, English through the medium of their um, formal education, either through a kind of EMI immersion uh, program or where English is the taught language. And I think the key issue that emerges is teacher education and support. So to what extent are teachers trained effectively to be able to deliver the promises of bilingual education or English language education in these early childhood education settings? Um, to what extent do children, do the teachers have proficiency in English? Um, I know I've seen in myself on, on trips that um, in certain um, nursery schools in different parts of the Eastern Asia, where there's this sort of team teaching approach and there's a native speaker who, who comes from an English speaking country, but doesn't know anything about childhood development or teaching. And then there's the qualified trained teacher who obviously knows a lot about child development and teaching young people, but doesn't have English as a native language. And I've seen it myself where the non-qualified native speaker sort of is, is dominant in, the, in these contexts. And so there's a real issue with the proliferation of these programs around the world. There's a serious issue about um, making sure that our teachers are appropriately supported to be able to deliver. And just from a UK example, I mean, we have uh, lots of important early childhood education settings for children. We don't necessarily have the language that we need, but that's another podcast. But what we don't have in England is, I would say, um, the kind of rigorous training and support for teachers in these educational settings that we need. I'm afraid that there are still people out there who think that children in this form of education are, are really being babysat. They just need to have a nice time and play, but we don't actually have to do anything pedagogical, you know, uh, with them. And that I think is so dangerous because uh, 
those of us who work within education know very well that um, it's for good reason that this era, this, this phase of education is often referred to as the most important grade because it sets up, we have empirical evidence to show that the experiences that children have in their early childhood educational uh, settings actually predict what will happen to them later. And so it is so important that we get it right. And if we do want to support uh, bilingualism or multilingualism through this important phase, then it's critical that um, teachers have the tools they need, they have the knowledge they need that's based on rigorous evidence to be able to do that. Yeah, I think you just made the case by going through all the different regions, how teachers, again, make the greatest influence in students' learning. Right? And so when we have qualified, when we have teachers who are uh, highly trained, they understand the pedagogy, they understand the practices, they understand the strategies and approaches. We have students who learn. And it's not just glorified babysitting, it's intentional teaching. Exactly. Yeah. Let's move to the second part, which is about, okay, so we have this research, and you talked about, you alluded to the strategies and tools that teachers can use. Like, how can we now implement the suggestions in your research to support bilingualism in the early years, uh, ages zero to seven. Yeah, so yeah, that first section was kind of an overall snapshot of issues that might be pertinent to particular geographical contexts. Um, and I guess not surprisingly, perhaps um, common themes did emerge from that. In the second section of this volume, um, the focus is, is on children being educated through the medium of English when they don't have English as a sort of home language or a first language. Um, but instead of sort of a global kind of, well, not global, but local overall snapshot, these, these um, contributions were focusing on very specific topics or issues or pieces of research. So in the, the second section of this volume, there's um, a really excellent, um, contribution from Joanne Parody, who talks about developmental language disorder. And of course, um, there are, there are, there's ambiguity, I think, for many people about what constitutes typical second language development, which will be errorful, right? Kids make errors all the time as they're learning their languages. And atypical errors that a child who has a developmental language disorder might produce. And of course, if you're being raised, if you're a bilingual child or you're being raised in a bilingual environment, it can be challenging <laughs> for uh, practitioners and, and family members and, you know, and speech and language therapists to be able to tease apart what we know to be typical of, of English language development when it's not the home language and what is atypical. And so she sort of teases apart all of those things and talks about the importance of, uh, among other things, measuring the child's linguistic proficiency in all of their languages. Because of course, if you want, if you, if you have developmental language disorder, you're, you're gonna, it's probably gonna manifest itself in all of the languages you know, so you can't just test their English, that you need to test everything else. And that raises problems about how easy it is to do that. So we have, we have a contribution about that. We have another contribution about um, 
oral language, oral language intervention. Uh, and, and basically it highlights how incredibly important it is that our students develop strong oral language skills. And the reason for this is because just it's, it is important just to be able to do that, but it's also incredibly important because it underpins literacy skills. Oral language skills are very, very um, closely associated with literacy skills. And of course, literacy skills underpin academic achievement. So we have a contribution from Silke Fricka um, and colleagues about how to develop oral language skills in children who um, are being educated through the medium of English when English is not their home language. And related to literacy, we have another contribution in this section about the development of language and literacy instruction in the Maldives and how challenging it can be to get the balance right between the curriculum in terms of L1 and L2 support, both in terms of really basic things like how much time should I spend in English versus another language, but also in terms of what the school, whole, the school policy about separating time and resources across the different languages. Um, and then there was, there's another in that section, there's a, a chapter on um, vocabulary development in EMI settings in preschools in Hong Kong. And the authors there talk about how many preschools in Hong Kong are actually privately run and therefore not so much under the control of the Education Bureau, the education, the government uh, in Hong Kong. And they, again, going back to the themes from the first section, talk about the, the connection between teachers' experiences and qualifications and proficiency and how they use uh, class time to do, to build vocabulary and reading. And in, in their study, there was, there was a positive correlation between that. The more qualifications and experience the teacher had, the more likely they were to be able to generate activities that would support uh, children's English vocabulary and reading through uh, the classroom. So I thought that was a very interesting one. And then we have another one in that section from Singapore, um, which again is a fabulously um, rich linguistic uh, environment. And they describe a case study um, of a particular context of early childhood education where they talk about a good blend of languages and how the, the languages were brought in um, both in terms of um, uh, linguistic instruction in the classroom, but also in terms of culture and how uh, it really supports the development of cultural understanding in terms of um, talking about language and, and what language can bring. So it's not just about becoming proficient in ling linguistic terms, but also in, term in cultural terms, which uh, is always interesting and important, but in a, in a multilingual, multicultural context like Singapore particularly so. And then the last paper that we have in that section is on listening comprehension skills and whether and to what extent nursery rhymes, which are very, very common for early childhood education settings generally, um, whether or not li listening comprehension can be um, supported through um, engaging with nursery rhymes and whether you know, that kind of thing can support children's content learning as well. And they suggest that it does. So we have, we have a quite, again, uh, in this section, quite a range of topics and so again, it's a bit challenging just to say, here's a theme or two from this, but 
equally, I'd say that um, more or less all of those chapters in this section um, pick up on the issue of teacher education, teacher training, support for teachers, as well as um, having appropriate resources available for teachers. So can you tell us what instruction in these case studies in these uh, different areas look like? Is it Does it look like your French immersion that you experienced or was it like uh, dual language instruction? Uh, well, this, this, this section of the volume is more about EMI. So it would look more like my experience um, as a kid in French immersion. But um, I think in the case of the Singapore example, whereas I, I was telling you before about when I was in French immersion, we had these sort of two solitudes. French was completely sort of separated from English when I had instruction in English. And the thing about, um, the, which is really encouraging to see in 2015 when we have this volume published is that it's not so rigidly, um, you know, this is my patch and you can't come, you know, it's more, we can draw upon different languages and, and different cultural um, features uh, whenever we wish. And I, obviously in a case like Singapore, it helps because this, the surrounding environment supports that because a lot of the kids will be, you know, being um, learning English, but they might have, obviously they'll have different languages in the home, but they'll also have, they'll also encounter English outside in a way that, you know, in, in other contexts, they, they may not. So um, different settings lend themselves. This is the thing about not generalizing too much from one setting to another, because different settings, I think, lend, lend themselves to different kinds of approaches. But most of the approaches in this, this if, well, all of the approaches in this particular section are about using English as the medium of instruction. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that there isn't sometimes a focus on language. So as I said, there was that um, case of Hong Kong uh, where there was that relationship between teachers' qualifications and the likelihood that they would use activities to support language, vocabulary, which can then support early reading skills and the emergence of early reading skills. So, so even if it's uh, English as a medium of instruction, that doesn't mean there's no place for some kind of um, focus to focus on form, I guess, in supporting um, the linguistic development of children's um, linguistic repertoires. Would you be able to talk, this is so great, would you be able to talk about the Singapore case study a little more, about culture and language? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, it was, I haven't read it recently for a while. Um, I, so, I mean, my memory of it was about how the school had to make decisions about which languages would be used at different times and, and when to bring in different languages and different aspects of the cultures at different times. And it was about uh, uh, sort of interrogating the balance. So this was a case study of a particular setting and it was about asking whether or not this on the surface looked to be the right balance between how the languages were used in different, uh, for different reasons uh, drawing on different cultural uh, issues uh, and to what extent that this was supporting the children's development of both language and culture. Um, 
So, so I don't think that the chapter says this is the, the correct formula, but I think what it does do is it, it really helps us understand that particularly in a multilingual context like Singapore, how we should be interrogating these issues. We should be asking that question. It also came up with um, one of the, the, the South American chapter about the balance between, uh, and also the Maldives uh, chapter actually, about the balance uh, between of the different languages that are available to the child and to the teacher and to the school and how critical it is that you get that balance right because even if it's an EMI setting it's not English to the exclusion of everything else it's not like the other languages are unimportant right and so you need to be able to have the balance right to be able to promote the languages that's the target language at the time but at the same time sending the message that all of the languages are important within that within that community. So it's it's about that, but I'm afraid I can't really give you too many more details. I'd need to read it again. Not a problem. What can I ask you this question then? You talked about vocabulary, comprehension, you even, you even talked about uh, nursery rhymes. So if you had a magical Harry Potter wand and you were able to structure uh, early years with non-essential components, how would you structure early years uh, to support bilingualism? When you say non-essential components, what do you mean by that, Dan? I mean the most essential, like non-negotiable. Oh, the most, okay. Um, well, I think based on my, uh, on, on this volume and uh, other pieces of work that I'm familiar with, and indeed have written myself, I would say that the first thing is to get um, the teachers um, in, the, in, the, in a position of strength. Um, again, we have to fight against this notion that because they're little people and little kids, we don't need to be professionals in terms of our understanding of the field, that we don't need to be trained, that we don't need to know about the, the you know, decades worth of evidence on child development and language development in children. So I think any bilingual education program has got to have that as a foundation that we train our professionals appropriately because it definitely emerged from this volume as a key, key factor. Um, so that's number one. Number two is again, in service. <laughs> education and training. So just if even if you've had the benefit of a really fantastic pre-service training, I think making sure that we can support teachers with their professional development as they are, you know, um, delivering, if you like, uh, the, the or implementing the bilingual education programs. This is really critical because, as we all know, teaching is an incredibly difficult and challenging profession, and it takes so demanding in terms of time. And it's really just not possible for teachers to accommodate. I mean, I'm an academic. I get paid to be an academic, um, and I can't keep up with the research in my field. So how is a teacher supposed to do that when they're spending all day actually teaching and forming the minds of little people, our future citizens. You know, it's, it's an impossible task for them, which is why we need to um, be very mindful of in-service training because things do change. What we view, you know, as new evidence comes in, we might change our minds about certain things. Um, 
So, which is only a good thing in my view. I think we have to be willing to change our minds if we have, you know, rigorous evidence to, to support that. So I think we also have to make sure for bilingual education to work, we have to make sure we have really good in-service education as well. But the key, the critical key is in the name <laughs> and the name is bilingual education. And so one of the things that I've seen myself, it sort of came up a bit in this volume, but I've seen it in, in all of my work in, is, is in, in non-English speaking countries, the, because English is the lingua franca, um, the, the, the zealousness, the, what's the word, the, the zealotry, I don't know, the, the zeal with which parents in particular you know, want their kids to be able to master English because there's a strongly held belief that the better you are in English, the more opportunities your child is going to have. Um, and so parents want their kids to learn English. One of the chapters, in fact, I think it was the one about Hong Kong, where they had done some uh, surveys with parents. And there were some parents saying that they didn't mind if their Cantonese-speaking children lost Cantonese as their home language, if it meant that they were going to develop English. I'm so glad to see you going like this, Tan. I know, that's how I felt when I read that. And I just thought, this is not bilingual education. It shouldn't be English education. It should be bilingual education. And particularly in the early years, developing home language skills is critical. I mean, critical. And so it should not be at the cost of one language to the other. So I would say, in early education um, settings, if we want our children to become bilingual, which of course we do, it can't be either or, it can be both or all three or however many languages are relevant for a particular setting. So I think we get the teacher training, the teacher education in service right, but the curriculum has to be bilingual or multilingual. And teachers need to be really um, skilled at drawing on those languages. You, you mentioned, Tan, you mentioned the translanguaging word. And, I, and yes, translanguaging is such an important um, topic these days. I would argue, and I know this is highly controversial, and you may not want to broadcast this podcast after I say what I'm about to say, but I believe that we don't have enough evidence yet to be able to tell teachers, you know, if you do X, then Y will happen. And this is what we all want for our own understanding is to be able to understand if I, if I teach phonics, what's going to happen? Well, I can tell you that if you teach phonics, you're going to be developing coding and uh, coding, decoding skills in your kids if they are reading an alphabetic language. It doesn't mean that that's all you should do, but I can tell you that if you teach phonics, this is what's going to happen. With translanguaging, we have lots of discussions about it, and intuitively and inherently it seems right, of course, we should be, we want multilinguals. We don't want English speakers, we want multilingual speakers. So only ever focusing on one language, it doesn't seem to be the way to go. But equally, 
we need the evidence to be able to support teachers in terms of how to draw upon the home languages of their non-English speaking kids. This is particularly a challenge in contexts like England, where we were talking before, I think we started recording about how England is a highly multilingual, multicultural society. And it's very common in schools in England for kids uh, for a teacher to have, I don't know, 25 kids in their class and 10 of them speak another language at home that isn't English. And of those 10, there could be five or 10 different languages represented. And if we go to, you know, people like me say to teachers in that context, you should draw upon the home languages of your children. They don't know the home languages of their children. They have no idea how to say anything in Urdu or whatever. They just don't know. So how are they supposed to do that? And I would say we have some suggestions. We have some ideas. We have some case studies. We have some descriptive evidence of how other people have done it and how they think it happened. But I would argue that one of the things we absolutely need to do in research is have much more larger scale, longitudinal and intervention based design so that we are in a much stronger position to say, if we want to support the whole linguistic repertoire available to children, these are the things we can do in classrooms that have been shown to be effective. And I think we need that much more than we have at the moment. Right. Yeah, I think you're, you're talking about, you're channeling Dr. John Hattie. He talked about when, we, when teachers come together, they shouldn't just talk about strategies. They should talk about what effect does that strategy have, right? Exactly. And so we want teachers to utilize and tap into students' linguistic repertoire. But what strategies are the most effective at doing that? And we don't have that uh, research. No, I, I don't think we have that research. And as a researcher myself, I actually get quite concerned when I see other researchers like me who are really keen on translanguaging, which, you know, as I said, translanguaging might be the answer to all our woes. But um, I'm very concerned about researchers at, uh, exhorting teachers to do certain things on the basis of little evidence. I think we need to help teachers understand what we have available to us in terms of evidence, what the theories are telling us. And we have a lot of theoretical bases from which we can suggest or, or hypothesize that an approach that draws upon different languages will be effective. But until we have that rigorous big body of evidence that I think we, we really need, I think we should be a little bit more cautious about how we go about doing that. That's, I think you're uh, giving a clearing call for the next generation of researchers to say, hey, how do we do this? We have a theory about translanguaging. Now, how do we actually do this? Let's do some research. Yeah. Because I, I give lots of talks to teachers about research. And one of the number one questions when I talk about the importance of the home language, and this is why how this thread of our discussion came up, you asked me, what are the ingredients of a successful bilingual program? It would be making sure that we, we have the home language represented. And if there are children in that bilingual program, like when I went to French immersion, everybody in my class spoke English and we were all learning French as the target language. But, um, you know, it's increasingly the case that of kids in French immersion, 
60% might be English speaking, but then the other 40% might have any other language in, in, in their context, in their home. And like I gave the example of England, where there are numerous languages uh, available and present in our, our primary school um, children. And I'm always saying to teachers how this is a resource. This is a resource that we should draw upon and support. And then they always say, how? <laughs> and 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 we have we have good uh, suggestions for how. I mean, there are you know prominent researchers in the field have written guidebooks and have lots of activities as examples. But I would say very respectfully that I think some of these activities and guidebooks haven't. They, they are fabulous ideas, but what we don't yet have is the solid evidence base behind it. Well, let's end the podcast with uh, your epilogue that you wrote to to cap 300 pages of research. Like, can you tell us about the epilogue and what is your closing message for teachers with the epilogue? Yeah, um, again, I, I, I was a bit worried about what we would say, thinking that we had so many different elements within this volume that it would be hard to bring it together. But basically, it's a restatement of many of the things that we've already been talking about, the importance of teacher education, that early childhood education and care settings is not just babysitting, that it is a critically important stage in children's educational career, and that people who are um, supporting children through this phase need to be appropriately um, qualified to do it. Um, and that relates as well to proficiency in English. So, um, Unfortunately, it is also the case that in many EMI contexts around the world in higher education and in early childhood education, um, again, with policymakers zeal to sort of show that we're international and we're supporting English, teachers suddenly have to teach things through the medium of English when maybe their own English isn't very good. And teacher proficiency in the language is, is, has emerged both in our volume, but in other areas of research as being really important. I don't think you need to be a native speaker. Going back to my, my love of Mr. White, who was one of my French teachers <laughs> in secondary school, he was not Monsieur Blanc, he was Mr. White because he was English, but his French was impeccable. He, his, he was not a native speaker, but his French was superb and he was a superb, highly skilled, teacher. And so this is what we need for, for, for this domain, for early childhood education through the medium of English or on English. We need to have really good teacher qualifications, really good teacher education, very strong research-informed curriculum development, and access to the quality resources. We need time as a resource, but we also need materials, and, we, and teachers need access to all of that. So that's, that's one of the things that emerged from our book that we talked about in this epilogue. The other thing that we talked about was what I was just talking about, which is first language support. If we're interested in developing bilinguals or multilinguals, particularly in the context of early childhood education, we cannot ignore the home language because if you take, um, well, if you take if you take the example of French immersion and and you know me in, in Canada, you're English, but you're learning French. Fabulous. But I can't lose my ability to speak English. I can't lose my ability to be literate in English. 
if I want to be competitive on the job market or do well and have all opportunities available to me, I need to have high proficiency in both languages and I need to have high levels of literacy in both languages. And we have plenty of evidence now from contexts like French immersion, like the two-way immersion that you were mentioning and others, that we can do that all in the same kind of educational context. But the critical thing is to not sacrifice the home language for, for the second or English in this case, because this actually serves to um, uh, hold children back if we don't support their home language development. And another area that we kind of touched upon um, in our discussion so far, but emerged from the volume was parents and how profoundly important they are in early childhood education settings. We know from decades worth of work in education that in the very early years of a, child experience, of a child's experience, and I'm not talking about bilingual education, the parents are the most important factor. Eventually parents stop becoming so important and peers become much more important. But when we are grabbing these kids from zero to seven, it's the parents that are still incredibly important. And these immersion education programs that we've been talking about, the French immersion and the two-way immersion, both of those were actually um, a grass, started as grassroots movements by parents because they wanted English speaking parents in Quebec wanted their kids to be able to speak French better than what they were achieving in the sort of standard approach. Hence, they brought in uh, Lambert and Tucker and tried to develop this French immersion. And similarly, the two-way in um, the US, again, was a grassroots movement from um, parents of ethnic minorities, immigrant kids, they wanted, you know, lots of kids in Florida, for example, who speak Spanish and they weren't getting any Spanish in school. So they wanted their kids to get Spanish in school. So the power of parents cannot be underestimated and it can be a real powerful source of good, but it can also be tricky <laughs> because in other contexts, non-English speaking contexts, like we were saying earlier about the, the one in Hong Kong, um, parents might be willing to sort of let the home language go um, at the cost, uh, at the um, expense of, of learning English, and this is not the right thing for any child. So parents, and, and parents need to be able to be guided appropriately to be able to provide the best home language learning environment for their children. That's another thing that happens is, um, particularly in the minority language learning context, uh, parents are often told that they should speak English to their children at home, even if their own English isn't very good. And I'm, I can see you doing this. And this is absolutely, like, we know that. That is not the right thing to say to a parent, but it still is being said to parents. So parents are a really, really important variable in early childhood education that we have to get right. And then the last thing that we talk about in the epilogue is, is again, what I've already said is the importance of, of doing more research because we just don't have enough, in my view, longitudinal, rigorous, intervention-based research so that we can really feel confident that if we were to employ particular pedagogical practices in a particular way, in a particular context, what is the likely outcome to be? And we can sort of guess that, but I would like to see more rigorous research that speaks directly to that. Well, Dr. Murphy, you have been so gracious with your time. 
sharing with us your report and also giving us so many things to think about. And I think the main thing that I'm hearing is that though they're young, it's not babysitting. Uh-huh. We have to get qualified teachers. We have to continue to use students' community languages, their home languages, their heritage languages all together. And uh-huh. parents are partners in that as well. So absolutely, it has been wonderful to be uh, to host you. And thank you so much for sharing uh, your research with us. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. I often hear about teachers who have extra blocks on their schedule, so they're assigned to work with multilingual students. Even though these educators have not received the necessary coursework to teach ML or language acquisition. The results can be disastrous. We need high quality educators who have taken the required coursework. This is the need that I see in secondary education. This is also the same need that Dr. Murphy pointed to when staffing early childhood education. We need highly trained language specialists who understand language acquisition and early childhood development if we want students to receive high quality dual language instruction. However, there is one thing we can do. We can encourage parents to abandon speaking English to their children and instead continue to speak the language that they're most proficient in. A solid linguistic foundation laid by one language provides the fertile ground to nurture other ones. Students cannot learn a new language at the expense of the first ones. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.